Hey guys. Um, this is super exciting. Uh, I am, I've been, you know, Julie and I have been waiting for this day for a really long time. Um, we've been, uh, we've been talking about playing a church together for four plus years probably now. So this is like a really exciting day for us. And uh, I have been so excited to just see like the energy in the room all morning as we've been setting up. Um, and, uh, I hope that that continues. It probably won't. Um, <laughs> if we're being honest, I don't think people are going to be as excited to get up at 630 to set a, uh, uh, or a high or a elementary school cafeteria up every Sunday morning. Um, but I want to say thank you to everybody, um, who was here this morning to help set up everything, uh, who is on our hospitality team, who is doing AV stuff, who is here doing worship, who's helping with kids stuff, um, who is leading community groups that we've already started, whatever it is, um, this was, you know, me and Julie's, uh, dream. This was something that God put on, on Julie and I's hearts, but now, like, it's all of our dream, and I think that that is really cool, and that has been something that has been so exciting to me, is uh, for us to be able to share the vision of what, what God is having us do with all of you. So thank you all so much um, for everything you've done so far, everything you did today, and everything you will continue to do to help uh, to make this possible and to make it so that we can uh, be preaching the gospel and letting helping people to meet Jesus in, in this area. So I want to say thank you all so very much uh, for all that. Um, what we're going to do for these first two weeks is uh, we're going to spend, um, we're going to start a sermon series through the book of Ephesians on our official launch Sunday. And uh, as we prepare for, the, for this Sunday and the next Sunday, we're just going to do uh, sermons through a couple of psalms. Um, and that's going to be a pattern that I like to do when we, we have some extra time uh, as a buffer to just walk through some psalms. Um, and so uh, we're going to be talking through Psalm 11 today. Um, and so if you have Bibles uh, with you or you have an app on your phone that you'd like to use to follow through, go ahead and open those up now. Uh, Normally, we would like to try to have some sort of sermon notes available for you to use, um, probably on your phones, um, so we're still deciding that. But today, you guys will just have to follow along without them. So um, anyway, yeah, go to Psalm 11, and uh, this is a psalm that I have preached on in the past and is a really, I think, applicable one for everybody here. Um, and uh, the, the sermon title is Take Refuge in the Lord, um, and... Uh, like uh, pretty much all the psalms, this is a psalm that is uh, is something that is really like intimate and personal, and you can really see uh, the soul and the emotions of the author of it, which in this case is is uh, David. Um, and that's something about the psalms I think is so what 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 draws people to them. Uh, that is so unique about the Psalms in the rest of the Bible because uh, it's not just true that Christians know the Psalms really well. They're actually uh, very popular uh, outside of the church as well. People are very well acquainted with the language of the Psalms because of the ways in which they, uh, they are like a, a, like a microscope or, a, or uh, into our hearts and, and, and we, we can understand what the authors are are writing about and we can understand where they're at and why they're um, in that space because we resonate with it. I know uh, there have been times in, in my life where I've been going through really difficult times where the Psalms were some of the only things that could really 
console me or make me feel better. Just reading through those and seeing uh, that I was not alone in feeling what I was feeling, um, that someone else thousands of years before me had been feeling uh, some of the same things and uh, to see their, uh, the way in which that they were worshiping God in the midst of that um, as, the, uh, as the hope that they had where they were at. I think the Psalms are unique in that. So um, we're going to just spend a little time in, in the Psalms and for the next couple weeks and I hope that that is something that meets you where you're at, wherever that is. Um, the... Uh, the, the theme of this psalm, and it's a theme of, of more than just Psalm 11, is this idea of refuge. Um, we see it right away in the first verse that David says, in the Lord I take refuge. And um, he, he, it's, in, it's, in, it's important, I think, that he says this, he states this right away, because he's about to jump into what the problem is. But before he even gets into that, he's already framed himself, he's already told himself, this is where I'm at I am believing, even though it might be hard to believe right now, that the Lord is my refuge. Um, and why it's, it's important that he uses that language of refuge, which, like I said, is, is, a, is a, a theme that you see throughout many Psalms and even other places in the Bible, uh, is because of kind of where he goes with it. Um, but before we jump into the rest of the psalm, I just want to like talk a little bit about that idea of refuge um, because I think it can be something, especially in the way that David is, is meaning it, that is a little bit, can be a little bit foreign to us. Uh, there's a line from a song by the hip-hop artist Lecrae who we had bump in here before uh, the sermon started. You may have uh, heard that. Uh, that has always struck me and, and helped me to understand, uh, I think, the ways in which... Uh, <laughs> The way I grew up was, was very different than him. And this is a line from the song where he says, I'm not going to rap it for you because everyone is probably happy that I don't. But and he goes, hey, look, my homies told me uh, back when I was playing my Nintendo, so when he was young, when he was young playing his Nintendo, to stay away from windows because bullets, they tend to hit those. And so what he does in, in this line is he kind of uh, lets you understand that for him, his house was more than just a place that he slept at night. It was actually a source of refuge because he lived in an area where it was dangerous to go, just go outside or be next to an open window. And so the house becomes a source of refuge to him that helps him uh, to be safe in situations where projectiles may be flying at him, which is actually uh, the place that David talks about when he moves forward too. But I just think that it's, it's, uh, it's good to delve into what that is actually like because that's not something I've ever uh, thought much about, but it's the experience of a lot of people, like, where your house becomes your refuge, actually. Um, and David is going to talk about uh, the way in which God is that for him. Um, before we move forward, too, and this is going to be more important as we move forward in the sermon, uh, but I want to highlight the way in which uh, a refuge doesn't necessarily make the problem go away. Right? Just because Lecrae is hanging out in his house and he's making sure he's not near any windows doesn't mean that bullets aren't still flying around outside. It just means he's shielded from them. Okay? So a refuge does not take away the problem. It doesn't undo the problem, but it keeps you safe in the midst of it. And I think that's an important uh, idea as we move forward and as we kind of uh, dig into the psalm a little bit. So let's get into it. Verses 1 and 2, David says, In the Lord I take refuge. He frames himself uh, correctly at the very beginning, but then he jumps into the problem. How then can you say to me, flee like a bird to your mountain? Um, For look, the wicked bend their bows. They set their arrows against the strings to shoot from the shadows at the upright in heart. So uh, David is um, 
in a place where uh, the wicked are shooting arrows at him. And he's been told to run away from the arrows, right? And, and the, whoever it is that is uh, counseling him to take off and run is, is actually using the idea of a bird fleeing. Uh, I don't know, um, our dog Kinsley loves to chase animals in our yard. And so whenever there's a bird in the yard, she, you know, she chases after it and is never going to understand that she's not actually going to catch that thing. But um, you guys have noticed how quickly birds fly away, right? When you get anywhere near it. Like, there, <laughs> my, my uh, when I was growing up, my grandpa, this maybe will tell you a little bit something about my grandpa. Uh, he, I, just to get rid of us kids some days, he would have us go out into, our, into the yard and he'd give us a salt shaker and he'd say, if you can pour some salt on the tail of the bird, it'll let you catch it. And so we, were, we would spend afternoons trying to pour salt on the tails of these birds and it wasn't until we were older that we realized if you can get close enough to a bird to pour salt on its tail, you can just grab it. But the whole point is you're never going to get close enough to pour salt on a, on a bird's tail. So um, that's kind of the point though, right? So the metaphor that uh, David's friends or counselors are giving him is as fast as a bird flies away from something, that's how fast you should be fleeing these arrows right now. That's how fast you should run uh, from danger. And so you get the sense that uh, David's friends or counselors are telling him Instead of having your mind on the idea of God as your refuge, you should have it on these arrows. They're staring right at the arrows, and they're very aware that these arrows are pointed right at them, and they're probably imagining uh, these arrows sticking out of their chests, or, you know, the ways in which these arrows are going to uh, deprive them of life or, or injure them in some way, and their response is take off and run. Now, what are the arrows? I don't know. And it's actually not important. I, I think that maybe David means literal arrows, but the beauty of the Psalms is that uh, they don't have to be literal arrows for us to be able to understand or sympathize uh, what's going on. We can really substitute anything uh, that we have that would be causing us to run or causing us to be tempted to not view God as our refuge, and we can really uh, jump into the psalm and identify ourselves with David and where he's at right now. Um, and I think that's the beauty of the psalms, because if it was, you know, the only way to interpret this is if when you have arrows pointed at you, you should run away from them. That was the, if that was the, like, you know, the, the, the point we we're supposed to take from the psalm, it wouldn't have that much relevance for us <laughs> today. So, so it's good for us to be able to look deeper at that, I think. Um, but regardless, um, I, as we're going through this, I maybe want you to be thinking about what are uh, different things that might be that way for you, where you're at in your life. What are some different arrows that you feel like are aimed at you right now, where you are tempted to flee because you can only think about the arrows being pointed at you. Like, that's the only reality that you can think about while you're there. And David uh, is, I think he's, you know, we should be reading this as a quote of his friends or counselors. where They say, when the foundations are being destroyed, what can the righteous do? There's literally no option for these people who are being, uh, have these arrows pointed at them other than running away. That's what David is being told that his, uh, that his, uh, he's being tempted uh, or pushed to believe that, so he should be fleeing and not believing that God is his refuge. Now, I think, like I said, the Psalms are just uh, so uh, relevant for us because they describe people in situations that are like us. And I think, really, uh, 
some of the ways that we talk about how we are tempted to respond or the ways our bodies respond uh, to difficult situations, while they may not have used those words, you can see that's going on. And so I think this idea of anxiety being the thing that David um, is tempted to fear or uh, something that his friends feel um, is something that we can totally understand. Like this is the type of thing we think about when we're feeling very anxious and we're feeling uh, very much like we should be fearing or, or even depressed or something like that. Um, and I think that like that's one of, the re- one of the things about the Bible that is so incredible is that it's not just a list of doctrines or not just a list of uh, truth statements. It's a book about uh, people dealing with real topics and is engaging with the ways in which um, Jesus and God deal with those things. And we see that very clearly, I think, in the Psalms. Um, and so I think, like, when we're thinking about this, we should not, if, if you're someone that has anxiety or, or has struggled with anxiety or, or is wondering, what do I do when I do feel anxious, um, this is the type of place that we should be going to and, and really asking, like, uh, what, is the, what has been the response of people who have worshipped God for centuries uh, when they felt this, the same types of things as me? Um, now, before we move forward, I just want to make a couple points on anxiety. First of all, anxiety is a real medical condition, um, and I'm not disputing that. I'm not necessarily saying that just because there, you know, the author deals with it in a way that doesn't include going to see a therapist or maybe even uh, taking some sort of medication doesn't mean that you shouldn't be uh, if that's you, right? I think that's important to understand anxiety is a real thing that we can struggle with, that, uh, that different um, medication or, or seeing different professionals can help us through. Um, and it's a very common thing, right? I think one figure I read said that anxiety disorders affect around 18% of the population. Um, and so uh, there's a very good chance that many of us in this room uh, have struggled with anxiety or do struggle with anxiety on a regular basis. So if that's you, I want you to hear that. But I also want you to hear that the, the Bible speaks to your anxiety. People in the Bible experience it. And you're not wrong or broken for feeling that. If, if, you know, if someone as amazing as David, right, who is a man after David, or God's own heart, who is uh, the quintessential king of Israel, struggle with anxiety, it's okay that you do too. <laughs> um, and I want you to hear that, okay? Uh, now, the second thing that I want to say about anxiety is uh, I'm not saying that there aren't things that we should, that aren't worth worrying about, right, either. I'm not saying, like, if you're, if you're, like, oh, I should live a life where I don't worry about anything then, right? And I should just walk around and, and never be worried about anything at all. I'm not saying that either. Um, but I am saying that we shouldn't have an unhealthy, uh, unhealthy stress, right? We should not um, exasperate the problem in how we respond to that stress or worry and anxiety. And I think that what David does here is so great because it, ge- it tells us how we should be responding to that anxiety or stress. Um, one of the things that we do know, and I think David does this here, so biblically we know this, and also just um, from professionals in, 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 in the realm of cognitive uh, human behavior, would say is one of the things that you should be doing to combat uh, depression or anxiety is to be arresting our thoughts, taking them captive, and replacing uh, the types of untrue things that we're tempted to believe and replacing them with true things that we know are true and convincing ourselves of those things and the truth of them instead of the untrue things that we're being tempted to believe. And David does that uh, very clearly in the psalm. And we're going to see that as we move forward. 
But I want to keep, uh, keep talking about some of the ways that we can respond to anxiety or stress or worry that are not, not correct, okay? So the first one that we see here is anxiety can often come in focusing on the arrows, in dwelling so much on the arrow, arrows so that your world is basically defined by the fact that arrows are pointed at you, all right? So it's looking at the thing that is bringing stress or worry so much that it begins to be the only way that you view the world and, and is, is, is worrying about these things. We need to uh, be able to displace the image of the arrows with something else, something that is, is greater than the image of these arrows pointed at us and that can uh, remind us of, of a greater truth. Again, we'll see David do this as we move forward. The second thing that we, uh, anxiety can come is in taking on the weight of delivering ourselves, right? Taking on uh, the, the weight of defeating the arrows in some way. Um, and that certainly has a spiraling effect to it, right? Because uh, a lot of times when we bring on the weight of delivering ourselves, it causes us to go to a place of self-examination where we are reminded of the fact that we fail in all sorts of ways and that we are actually the last person in the world that we should be trying to fix some problem. We have very little control uh, to solve a lot of our problems. Um, the hard part about this is we get messages from our culture all the time that say things like, um, just be yourself or just do whatever, you know, makes you happy. And a lot of times that puts the weight on ourselves of needing to deliver ourselves, right? And so the, the thing that happens uh, when we do that is we replace this opening statement of the book, or of the, uh, sorry, of the psalm that we get. And instead of saying, in the Lord I take refuge, we're saying, in myself I take refuge. Okay? I'm the one that is going to provide refuge for myself. Now, this construct that we're, you know, so often tempted to create just means that we're taking on all of those arrows on ourselves. We're taking on the weight of, of, of taking on those arrows and saying that we'll be able to survive all of them. That's a lot of arrows to take on, right? I, I hope that as you've been thinking about what are the different arrows that have been pointed at me in my life that I, that I think about, right, maybe where I'm at right now or things in the past, you know, you have been wrestling with the fact that that's a lot of arrows to take on, right? That's a lot of, uh, lot of weight to put on myself. But we're still tempted to do that all the time, right? That's our default mode is to go to the place where we decide we are the ones who are going to be our own refuge. Now, what David does here is something that's really awesome, I think, because he, he takes a lot of these things that I've been talking about and he transcends the arrows. He moves to a place above the arrows. He, he quits focusing on them and he, and he makes it so he's not the one who has to be his own refuge, okay? He goes up to deliver to us this scene of God in his temple. The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord is on his heavenly throne. He observes everyone on earth and his eyes examine them. So what he does is he takes his thoughts captive, right? He could be spiraling into this place where he's thinking about, here's what I need to do. I need to run, or I need to take the arrows on myself, or uh, I'm going to just focus on the arrows. I'm going to just think about how sharp they look and how much they gleam in the sun and how you know much that would probably hurt if it went into my stomach or something like that. Um, and he replaces that with this truth statement that envisions God on his throne looking down on earth, his eyes examining everything. Robert Alter, a Jewish scholar, says this about uh, this, this part of the psalm. These words mark the turning point in the poem. 
The terrestrial landscape may be littered with depredations of the wicked who imagine they will continue to have the upper hand, but above it all, God looks down, sorting out evil from the good and preparing retribution for those who deserve it. So, when David's uh, viewpoint is only of the arrows and it's only thinking about the wicked people who are pointing him at him, he is forgetting the fact that God is above him, above everybody on his throne, observing everything and sorting out evil from good, preparing justice to go out forth from it. But when you only are thinking about the things around you, it can be very easy to see just the evil in the world, just the, the suffering, just the hard things that are going on and to forget about this truth that is going on above him. So David makes this, um, makes himself take his thoughts captive so that he is reminded of this truth about what is going on above him. Now, now biblically, this type of move is what is called uh, apocalyptic. And, and you, you've heard about apocalyptic literature. Uh, making this type of move where you are, 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 tr- are, are breaking in on the place that you're at with this uh, divine truth or with God himself breaking in is this, it's called an apocalyptic move. Uh, Beverly uh, Roberts Gaventa, she's, a, uh, she's a, a scholar on the New Testament, uh, puts it this way. Apocalyptic reading is sensitive to the fact that the world has gone so badly wrong that it cannot be fixed by repairing itself. It can only be fixed by outside intervention in the form of divine action. So when we start to notice uh, this uh, kind of apocalyptic theme in, the, in uh, Psalm 11, we start to understand that this is what's going on and this is what David is doing. It makes me at least think of another passage in scripture where something very similar is going on. And that is a passage of scripture that uh, is known as an apocalyptic text. And it, it takes place in the book of Revelation. Um, and so Revelation is a weird book. Um, I understand that, but I think when we kind of get what's going on in the book of Revelation, not everything, um, but we, we get a good sense for what's going on, it is such an amazing book because what it does is it breaks in on the present where we're at and gives us a new frame to think about things. Um, and so we're going to go to Revelation 5. Um, with, when we, while we have this picture of God on his throne, right, sorting out good from evil um, and uh, reigning and ruling and doing something about the wickedness in the world, doing something about the pain and the hardship and the, hard, the arrows that are pointed at us, um, it takes us, I think, to this same scene that's going on in the book of Revelation 5. So here's, here's what's going on in Revelation up to this point. Um, in, in chapter 4, we have God on his throne, and he is, um, he is great, and he is mighty, and you see that he is surrounded by uh, these, these heavenly beings who are praising him constantly, and you get this picture of God's sovereignty going forth and how amazing that is. Now, here's the problem in the book of Revelation is that there needs to be a way for God's uh, kingdom, for God's sovereignty, for his reign, for what's going on in this throne room to move out of the throne room into the world. And the, and the problem that's going on is that uh, there is no way for that to be made to happen, right? The, the author, uh, John, talks about how uh, no one is able to make this happen. He says in verses three and four, but no one in heaven or earth, on earth or under the earth could open the scroll or even look inside of it. Now the scroll is in the book of Revelation. It's a really important uh, MacGuffin, if you're familiar with that term. Uh, it's a MacGuffin in the book of Revelation, kind of. Um, I don't know if many of you guys know what that means. Never mind then. Um, so the scroll 
it contains God's will for bringing his kingdom and justice to earth. And uh, as it opens up, if you're familiar with the book of Revelation, a bunch of stuff happens, and that forms kind of the rest of the book as it moves forward. As that scroll gets opened up and God's will takes place, you start to see what God's will is, how he deals with evil and suffering and uh, corrupt empires and all these different things in the book of Revelation. But back at this part of the book, they're still wondering, how do we get this scroll open? How do we make it happen? No one's able to open it up. No one is worthy to open up the scroll. And so John says, I wept and wept because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll or to look inside of it. We move into the next verse, though. Then one of the elders, this is just one of the people who surrounds the throne room of God, says, uh, said to me, do not weep. See, the line of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. Then I saw a lamb, looking as if it had been slain, standing at the center of the throne, encircled by the four living cr- creatures and the elders. So, the one who is worthy to make uh, the scroll be open, to cause God's will to go forth in the world, to uh, do something about people who are shooting arrows at people like David, um, is, the one who's worthy is the slain lamb, who is himself uh, sitting at the center of the throne. And, um, w- you know, the imagery is really important. I, I think for, for most of us in the room, we're all aware of who this person is, right? A slain lamb. Uh, this refers to Jesus, right? But I think it's important that we pay attention to the imagery because uh, the, it's not just a lamb, it's a slain lamb. So there's something about the lamb being slain, this bloody lamb that has made it so that he's able to sit on the throne and to be the one who opens up uh, the scroll. And actually, I, I won't read this, but as you move forward in, in, in just a few verses, it actually says that explicitly. It's by your blood you made this all take place. Okay? So if we're going to uh, transfer this imagery back into the imagery of the psalm, what we're saying is that Jesus, as our refuge, takes the arrows of the enemy, and in the taking of those arrows, so that we don't have to, becomes worthy to sit on the throne and be made king of everything and to judge everything. So I think we start to see the ways in which these different elements of Psalm 11 come together in the book of Revelation and manifest themselves in the image of uh, the God who is our refuge, who in taking those arrows makes it possible for us to be saved, to have vindication, and to know that we don't have to worry about um, these arrows anymore. That's the God that we are taking refuge in. That's the God that, G, that David, even if he doesn't quite understand this fully as he's writing, that's the God that he is saying, I take refuge in. And this is why I take refuge in him. And this is what it looks like when I take refuge in him. And, and, and for us, as we lift our eyes above those arrows, this is the picture that we see. This is the picture that we should be uh, taking, captive, taking captive of these other images of the arrows and replacing it with, Okay. Let's move forward in, in, in the psalm here. David says, The Lord examines the righteous, but the wicked, those who love violence, he hates with a passion. On the wicked, he will rain fiery coals and burning sulfur, a scorching wind that will be their lot. Um, uh, the, the, the phrase, those who love violence, um, he hates, it can also be uh, rendered, the lover of havoc, he utterly hates. Okay, so it's not just physical violence. It's not just people who, you know, like to go around and cause harm. It's those who like to cause chaos, those who like to ruin things, <laughs> basically. Now, 
Uh, I imagine that there is a tendency for some of you sitting in, in, the, in our pews, aka these red chairs, uh, to uh, say, say like, be, like, cringe a little bit when you read this, right? Because this is a little bit uh, out of step with how we tend to, to view things, right? To say something like, like, oh boy, a God who will rain fiery coals and burning sulfur on people he hates is like, I, f- I feel like that's the kind of God we are trying to get away from in our culture, right? Um, and so I, you know, I want to just, uh, I want to explain to you what is actually going on here, okay? Um, because I think like when we understand it, it's actually not something that's, it's actually something that's a huge cultural value that we have. Um, is it, it, you know, is it harsh to say that God hates his enemies, that he wants this stuff to happen to them? I would actually go so far as to say, as much as we may bristle at that, it's not something we actually hate that much. Because uh, while we may be a culture that uh, is, you know, is not sure what we think about the idea of a God of wrath and mercy, we care a lot about justice in this culture, right? We care a lot about something being done to evil. We want there to be uh, an unrolling of justice in our world. We cry out for that on a regular basis, right? And sometimes we focus on different things that we may be looking for justice for. We might disagree on some of those things, but we all have a strong sense in which this is not how the world is supposed to be and we want God to do something about it and that's what this passage says God is doing about that wickedness and evil. And he's the one who is deciding what that looks like, okay? Now, uh, as we um, move forward in the psalm here, oops, dang it, I had the slides all messed up a little bit. Um, uh, so what it says in verse seven is the Lord is righteous, he loves justice, and the upright will see his face. Like those who are righteous and not wicked will be the ones who see his face. Now, I don't want you to hear, because everything I've said so far should hopefully keep you from going to this place, but it's still a temptation to say, uh, okay, I'm going to, like do what it takes to be one of the righteous people and not one of the wicked people. Like that's the impulse we have. Um, but to do that would be to move right back to the place that we were at already and to miss the whole point in which uh, we've been talking about God is our refuge. God is the one who takes the arrows uh, for us so we don't have to. Um, and only Christ as our refuge can save us. Only Christ as a refuge can actually make us be righteous. That's the way that we get to be righteous that is by just claiming Jesus as our refuge, by claiming that we believe that he is the king on the throne who takes the arrows for us. All right? And this becomes our promise then. The Lord is righteous, he loves justice, and the upright will see his face. Right? Doesn't mean, uh, doesn't mean that it will, um, they will see it right away, but the upright will at some point see his face. Right? That's the promise, that's the hope that we have. So as we close today, I have uh, three application points for you as we try to take this image, right, take the stuff we've been talking about in this psalm and make it uh, actually count for us, make it actually manifest itself in our lives, okay? The first point, the great victory is won even if we aren't delivered from our circumstances immediately. Now, um, God often does intervene to save us. Like, God often does hear our prayers when we cry out to him about something and he moves to save us. Um, And I think that happens more often than we realize because we're really good at focusing on the bad stuff that we have in our lives. We're really good at focusing on the hard things and we tend to really forget the good things pretty quickly once we we are in a place where we feel like things are tough again. God, more often than not, uh, moves to save us and to answer our prayers. 
Um, but because we are so good at focusing on the next set of arrows, we tend to forget that. And we tend to, you know, wonder, is God actually going to show up this time? Okay? So that's true. But it is also true that sometimes he doesn't. He does not respond in the way that we expect him to or hope that he does. And that means that sometimes arrows might actually, you know, hit us. They might nick us, right? They might strike a blow on us. That's not fatal, but still hurts. That still can happen, right? Um, But we do know that if that's true, that those arrows can't kill us because the enemies don't get the last word. Jesus, the king who takes the arrows for us, who is made king and judge of everything, does get the last word. And in those moments where we're wounded by arrows, where uh, we, we have been nicked by them, we need to remember that Jesus has triumphed over them, over the people that are shooting the arrows at us, and we can remember that it's not going to kill us. It's going to hurt for a little bit, but it's not going to kill us. And that takes us to my second point of application here. Um, Jesus took the arrows, so we get to carry our cross as well. Um, Jesus triumphed by taking arrows on for us, and what it looks like to follow him and to serve him and to be his disciple means that we are also going to have to do some suffering too, right? It does not mean that we're going to live a perfect life. It does not mean that uh, we are not going to get nicked by arrows occasionally, like I said. In Matthew 16, uh, Jesus tells his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. So what he's saying, if you're going to follow me, this is what it looks like. You're going to deny yourself and you're going to carry a cross too because uh, you're going to be made like me in following me. And that's not always easy. And when we remember that, I think we're in a much better place to deal with the fact that arrows are pointed at us sometimes. Okay? We shouldn't be totally surprised by suffering, but we often are. Like if we're, if we're honest, I think it's probably a, a Western culture thing. It's part of living in such a, uh, such a, you know, we're very blessed to live in such a um, nice society, right? But like we're also very, uh, we're also very insulated <laughs> from things. And so when, do, when things do go bad, we tend to respond very poorly and we should not. We should, we should understand that suffering is going to come and that's not a bad thing. Because if Jesus went through the cross, then we can certainly deal with a few arrows being pointed at us. My final point of application here is that God observes, right? God is on his throne, observing everything like we saw, and he also understands. Um, Because Jesus took arrows for us, he gets what it's like to take arrows, right? He understands what it is like to suffer so that he can be are, in the language of, of Hebrews, our great high priest who uh, bends down tenderly to care for us, knowing and empathizing with us and loving us and caring for us because he has been a part of the same uh, arrow-taking that we can. You don't die for someone that you don't love, right? You don't take on those arrows. You don't uh, become a slain lamb on a throne for people you don't love and Um, when you do, you understand what it is like for those people who follow you, who are taking refuge in you uh, to be hurt and wounded and anxious and depressed and and the different things that we feel, okay? So as we close here, um, I want to just uh, encourage you uh, to take refuge in the slain lamb of God. Now what we're going to do is we're going to enter into a a time of communion 
Um, and so while we're in that time, I want you to just kind of be reflecting. We're going to have a time of worship. We're going to have two worship songs. Uh, during those two songs, you're invited to come up to the front here. We have um, some bread. You can just rip a piece off of that. If you're gluten-free, we have a gluten-free uh, bin. And then we also have um, some grape juice here for you. Um, I want you to reflect on the different arrows that you may be facing, and I want you to, uh, to arrest those thoughts with a view of Jesus on his throne, a, the slain lamb who has opened the scroll of God uh, to bring about justice for us. Okay? I want you to reflect on that. And then I also want you uh, to ask yourself, how am I trying to be my own refuge? What are ways where I'm trying to be the one that takes on these arrows that Jesus has already taken on for me and is continuing to take on for me? And I want you to spend some time repenting of that. Um, because what we're doing when we come up to communion is um, we're doing a couple things. First of all, we're remembering Jesus' uh, sacrifice for us, for our sins on the cross. Okay? And we're remembering the ways in which he is our salvation and not ourselves. And we're also, in what Paul says in, in 1 Corinthians 11, we are proclaiming the Lord's death until he comes. We're proclaiming that his death has made him king of everything. Okay? So, um, I'm going to read this, this scripture from 1 Corinthians 11. I'm going to pray, uh, and then I'll, I'll invite you during our time of worship to come up and take some communion. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. If you would all please join me in prayer. Lord, we, uh, we, we thank you that you are our refuge and we do not have to be our own refuge, Lord. Um, the amount of arrows that you took on on our behalf uh, is the, the type that we can't, e- can't even imagine, let alone take on for ourselves. Yet you gladly and willingly uh, submitted yourself to your Father's will for us in love. And Lord, we, we thank you that you, you did that in love for us. And we also praise and worship you because you were made king in that. Um, you were made the judge over everything. And we don't have to fear that we live in a world of injustice or wickedness where uh, the people who love havoc and violence and, and, and are shooting arrows left and right are the ones who run things because they don't. You do. And Lord, we, we, we worship you for that. We thank you for that. I pray that you would uh, help us to repent of the times where we um, have said that we could take these arrows on and be a better refuge than you have been for us, Lord. Um, we are tempted to do that uh, constantly. And Lord, I pray in those moments that we are tempted to, that you would uh, lovingly remind us um, that we don't have to, um, because you have done it for us. We, we love you, we, we praise you, and we pray all these things in the name of your Son, our King Jesus. Amen.